0: From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: There are so many opportunities to serve. And if you're a non-clinician leader, if you're a clinician leader, if you're a physician leader who's listening to this and you're feeling called to lead, my call to action to you is to really look internal first and assess what drives you, what motivates you, what work do you feel most called toward and then to really actively network yourself to find people who do what you do.
0: That's Laurie Bedke talking about the role of emotional intelligence in leadership. We'll hear more from Laurie later in the show, but first a word from our sponsor. The value-based revolution is on and we have your roadmap. MGMA's book of the month, Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes by Tom Walsh. Whether you're at a single provider office or a national chain, this book will teach you how to capture the data that matters to patients, implement shared decision-making strategies, and thrive in the era of value-based payment models. To purchase or preview Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes, visit mgma.com navigating. Being smart, credentialed, accomplished, and well-educated isn't always enough, according to today's guest, Laurie Bedke. Laurie is an author, speaker, educator, and mentor, and she's here to explain the importance of emotional intelligence in healthcare leadership. Laurie, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You and I were talking last week, and you have this wonderful story, this background in your career in healthcare. One of the things you were telling me is that you were an executive by the age of 22, you started your own company at 26. You had this meteoric rise, and I'm just curious. It took me a little bit longer. So, how does something happen like that?
1: Uh, well, it is it is a little bit of a non-linear journey that I've had through healthcare. But um, I started actually my healthcare career at age 16. I grew up in a small town in outstate Nebraska and started my career as a CNA in a long-term care facility. Um, because there really are not very many job options, but I started at the very bottom and and really realized that I enjoyed healthcare immensely. I studied business and human services in undergrad and immediately started my graduate degree. Um, I, I clicked through college in three years, which kind of front-loaded that um, acceleration in my career. Came out of undergrad and while I was getting my master's degree in healthcare administration, I started my career at a health system here in Omaha, uh, was Allegiant, now CHI, in a physician practice environment and fell in love with that physician practice management uh, realm. I thought I was going to go into long-term care and then I really enjoyed the dynamics of uh, working with physicians in an ambulatory care setting. So spent five years um, working in health system employed, Physician practices, but then really in the early 2000s, there was this trend of a lot of the physicians that had been acquired by hospitals in the late 90s going back out into private practice. And um, so, I started a consulting firm in 2002, and um, I had always really identified as an entrepreneur. I grew up with a father that was an entrepreneur, and I have a strong affinity for entrepreneurship, and I'm a strong advocate for physicians in an autonomous practice environment. We don't see as much of it these days, as we all well know. Uh, The listeners to this podcast are acutely aware of that. But I started a consultancy that helped physician practices make that transition from hospital employment to private practice, set up their private practices, did startups for them, and and a lot of retained management, grew a team. Um, But, you know, it was six or eight years into my career that I realized that, Management um, and operations was something I was um, proficient at and, and good at, but really my deepest affinity was teaching, was speaking, was, was leadership development. And in those early years of my career, I would go to um, conferences, MGMA, ACHE, uh, others, and I was, was very Focused on growth and personal and professional development. And um, I began teaching as an adjunct instructor early in my career, probably earlier than anyone should have uh, invited me to do so. And I also started building a national speaking practice. So I was parlaying my passion for lifelong learning and growth and development into also then sharing that with others so that I could equip and encourage other leaders. So it has been a nonlinear path that's taken me from, you know, kind of healthcare executive management through consulting, and now I'm a program director of the executive MBA in healthcare management at Creighton University at, in Omaha. I'm in full-time academia. I still do speak actively nationally, um, but it is um, really, I guess, one of the things we'll be talking about today is is growing self-awareness and identifying your strengths and your weaknesses and your passions and your purpose. And for me, um, I realized early on, uh, that operations was something I was good at, but teaching and and speaking and leadership development was really my affinity, and so I have pursued it with gusto.
0: Right. Now, you, uh, you really did get it early in life. Uh, a lot of us take a, a longer path to uh, figure out where we're going. Um, I know that uh, you mentioned you did college in three years. Goodness gracious, I think I was still switching uh, majors well into the third and fourth year, you know, and figuring it out. How did you know so early? I mean, I know that today we're going to talk a lot about self-awareness, about emotional intelligence, and how that can fuel you and guide you. Uh, But one other thing that you mentioned as well was your dad uh, was an entrepreneur, which influenced you as well. And I'd be curious how that influenced you and, and guided you on your career path?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, I think for me, uh, I've always been a student of human behavior, and that has been something that has really fueled um, where I've landed in my career. And I, as I came out and was working in health systems and and with very diverse work teams, Um, In a physician practice environment, we have such a spectrum of individuals, um, physicians, receptionists, clinical staff, um, interdisciplinary teams that are involved in managing the clinical side, the back of house side. um, And I was very struck by or very intrigued and curious about not just the operational processes or the tactical side of that, but really my mind was always drawn to what were the differentiators in a performance perspective? What what helped certain individuals to perform at a higher level? What led certain teams or certain organizations to thrive and be high-performing versus those that are dysfunctional or toxic? And it was individually motivated by me kind of finding out and discerning where I fit. Uh, but then I really kind of immediately started to see the broader, more strategic application of how it's crucial as we rise from an individual contributor role in our career into those early and then advanced leadership opportunities. What is the application of what's my personal leadership style? What type or size or style of an organization am I going to fit in? What do I want to do? Um, And for me, if you look at the letters that are behind my name, those board certifications, those graduate degrees, the things that are on our business card, I look like, on paper, someone that should be in a CEO role in a physician practice or a health system environment. Um, And that's really not where I belong. Could I do that job? I sure could, Daniel. And would it light my soul on fire and make me want to pull on my boots, or in my case, four-inch stilettos every day and go chase life and work and endure the tough, difficult, messy challenges that any advanced leadership opportunity presents Probably not uh, because I believe that we all have a unique aptitude. And figuring out, bringing it all the way back to where that question began, I became a student of human behavior and tried to identify what are those attributes or what are those things that help any of us to identify, to nurture that self-awareness and then apply it to make sure that we can perform our day job to the very best of our ability, but then how we can position ourselves for our highest and best use. What type of a leadership role? Um, There are so many opportunities to serve and lead, and if you're a non-clinician leader, if you're a clinician leader, if you're a physician leader who's listening to this and you're wondering, you're feeling called to lead but you don't know because you don't feel like you look like anyone else that you see leading, My call to action to you is to really look internal first and assess what drives you, what motivates you, what work do you feel most called toward, and then to really actively network yourself so that you can be a student of human behavior and find people who do what you do. Maybe you're supremely motivated by um, policy and advocacy. Maybe it's innovation and technology or data analytics that lights you up. Maybe you're very process oriented in quality and performance improvement. I just named three major areas that are super distinct, but where we need very apt leaders in healthcare. And if you try to fit your square peg in a round hole, you're never going to be able to wring the amount of productivity and passion and purpose um, out of what you bring to the table and what table that you bring yourself to.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm wondering, on following up with what you're saying, Uh, how emotional intelligence can help inform us not only about others that we work with but about ourselves because as I had mentioned earlier in college I believe that's the case with so many of us that we go in there and we switch majors many times because we're still figuring out who we are and it's so interesting that you're saying it's important to figure out what your strengths are what your even what your weaknesses are. It's, it's good to know what those are as well. So let's first go back to that term, emotional intelligence. If you don't mind defining it for us, I know our audience, it's healthcare professionals, practice administrators, uh, healthcare leaders. Uh, they're aware of that term, but maybe not the full power of what it, what it really means. So if you could define that for us.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Let's start at the beginning, Daniel. And to me, I think the difference between IQ, intelligence quotient, and EQ, emotional quotient, is really um, that consideration of uh, the behavioral competencies. Emotional intelligence is defined as those behavioral competencies that are going to influence and drive our success or our ability to function. And so whereas, by and large, we tend to go through life knowing that we need to acquire certain degrees, credentials, certifications, knowledge and skills that inform our technical performance, our tactical performance. And those are very black and white. And um, they're very um, known to us. They seem familiar. But... um, The emotional intelligence, those behavioral competencies are really those elements of, Daniel, what is an individual's processing style? What's their communication style? What's their behavioral tendency? Um, What are their strengths and weaknesses? What are their blind spots? And this is not just a figure it out one time, choose a degree acquire a certification or a credential which is very known to us and we tend as humans to default to those black and white because the rest is shades of gray. Emotional intelligence is a little bit uncomfortable to many because it's shades of gray, it's the behavioral components. But here's where we differ because there are there are so many times and here's a practical example of if anyone listening to this like you and I have probably hired someone over time, we've considered a pool of applicants who have responded to a job posting, and we're looking at resumes, we're looking at um, application packets, and on paper, someone can fulfill all of the technical requirements, they have the right years of experience, and they have done this job, but how often have we hired someone, and then they show up in our practice or our organization, and they don't fit, or they're not able to parlay that technical knowledge, or that technical competence and deploy it because they lack the behavioral competence to do it in in a group of others, interdependent upon others, fitting in with your culture um, of your organization or a work team. Emotional intelligence is about those people who show up with a set of um, behavioral competencies. The emotional intelligence model that I most admire and probably is the most well-respected is a model that was developed by Dr. Daniel Goleman. And Dr. Goleman defines four domains. Domain one is self-awareness, followed by self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. So this is really about that introspective process of nurturing self-awareness, figuring out those elements I mentioned a moment ago. You know, how do I communicate? How do I process? How do I build relationships? How do I problem solve? How is that different from or like others around me so that I can assess where I fit? And then once I have Fit myself somewhere, self management and social awareness and relationship management is about deploying that and adapting or modifying that behavior day to day, month to month, sometimes hour to hour.
0: Right. And I wanted to discuss it from the standpoint of communication because, as you know, and our audience knows, technology has simplified many things, but also, like you're talking about, it's Complicated things because we can yeah. we can text each other. The two of us right now are communicating through a Zoom, uh, you know, call. And there's so many ways we can communicate, uh, but we still seem to lack some of the communication. I've talked to some other uh, management leaders who have talked about how communication has separated us in certain ways where we just continue in these endless loops of emails and then we copy other people into those emails and then they go on for, uh, you know, days and days where sometimes you just want to get up and walk across the hall and, you know, talk to that person face-to-face or just pick up the phone and have the direct communication. So talk about how emotional intelligence can help us communicate better?
1: I think that's a, a, a very valuable question to be asking because so many of us are operating in that environment where we don't have the luxury of seeing the whites of someone's eyes because you can read the nonverbals, um, and when you're communicating in person, you have huge advantages that are lost um, or nullified when you're communicating via email or text and much nuance can be lost. Think about how challenging it is to manage across multiple locations when you're trying to manage a team or an individual that you might not see in person but once a week or once every couple of weeks. And um, in leadership, we know that one of the leaders' jobs is that we can't do each of the individual functions but to set the expectation, to cast the vision, to be able to help to set a culture and then reinforce it. That's not just something you do once a year or once when someone joins your team and then you never do it again or you have a conversation monthly um, or annually. It is something that has to be reinforced and consistently um, visited. And I think that's where way too many of us can either get distracted or way too consumed or overwhelmed by just checking boxes and having our to-do list and just check it sent that email, had that conversation, filled out that form, delivered that report, and not effectively tailoring it so that it lands effectively. And I think that that's a hallmark attribute of emotionally intelligent leaders is that they really pause to assess A, their own communication style and any biases that might be playing into a particular communication, but then B, who is the recipient or the recipient group and how can I most effectively tailor my message or the way that I deliver it in a way that will make it most successful. Um, I'll toss a parenting example in. I happen to have the luxury of being a parent of teenagers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yay! Yes. And <laughs> so, you know, the demands of being a parent to teenagers and the communication that's necessary to them, very, very different from the communication style that I deployed when they were, you know, um, babies, toddlers, early elementary, and it's constantly evolving. And I think that we have to be adaptive. And, and one of our tendencies, again, I mentioned earlier that tendency to default always to the behavior, or excuse me, to default always to the technical competencies because it's known. We just go by the book, by the process. Instead of thinking about the behavioral competencies, they're a little bit messier. but. As well, I think that we can become prone to thinking, this is my leadership style, this is my leadership communication tendency, this is what's always worked in the past, but you might be in a different organization, you might be in a different level of a role, and frankly, we might be in different times. So when I entered my career, technology and communication mediums were not the same as they are today. And we have five generations in the workforce as we sit here today, the most of any time in, in modern American work history, and that adds complexities. So you amplify that by the amount of variety that we have in the way that people commun- can communicate, the types of mediums with which they're receiving that message, the obligation on each of us as individual leaders to make sure that we are assessing our own leadership style and then adapting it, getting good feedback from others. Early in my career, I had several amazing mentors who not only led by example and demonstrated their humility, their consistent drive to gain feedback from others who can help them to know where they're doing well, where they need to grow, where they've got blind spots, and then humbly opening themselves up to grow in those areas and to leverage those other opportunities and successes, but then to consistently seek feedback because Um, There's a Maya Angelou quote that I love to close a lot of my emotional intelligence lectures or talks with. And that quote says, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. And to me, that conveys um, two things. It conveys a lot of workload. It means that that journey is never complete. And I am constantly, over every year and decade of my career, going to need to continue to learn and grow and adapt but the good news is that it is a journey, and I can be better tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now than I was yesterday and a year ago and 10 years ago. And that, to me, is uh, there's, there's a double edge to every sword. And I think that that, to me, is a hearty call to action for all of us to be the type of individual that shows up with a growth mindset to really assess and then grow in our areas of behavioral competence because research demonstrates powerfully that our technical competencies will only take us so far. There is a sea of individuals who have the same credentials and experience competing, but where we can really differentiate ourselves as leaders and deliver more effective and sustainable results for our organizations and the communities that we serve is through making sure that we leverage those behavioral competencies of being able to communicate effectively, being able to adapt to change, being able to read the culture, and find fit in culture, and then lead by example so others in your organization follow suit, and that you're able to recruit and attract others to your organization who are very focused on doing the same. Because the alternative is not appealing. hmm
0: Let's talk about that then. Let's talk about how do you unlock your emotional intelligence? How do you uh, take the steps? What are the tools you can utilize to improve your emotional intelligence in the workplace and in life?
1: That's, that is, that's the million dollar question right there. But I would say I'll, I'll give just three tips um, today. Or I, I would say that these are habits or practices that you can consider to help you to start to grow in your own emotional intelligence the first is to really consistently and intentionally nurture growth in those areas the domains of emotional intelligence self awareness self management social awareness and relationship management so self awareness is is pretty easy and that's the one that's very very commonly seen in our workplaces you can take assessments um, any of the numerous dozens, if not hundreds of, of instruments or assessments that are available to help us to know our strengths, our weaknesses, our personality style. And those, you know, come in all flavors. It's StrengthsFinder, it's Enneagram, it's HBDI, it's Colby, it's, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So nurture that self-awareness. But then self-management means I know this and now I'm putting it into motion. So step or habit number one is to consistently and intentionally nurture growth in those areas. Number two, I would say, learn to be mindful of your emotions and your emotional reactions to people or situations. We haven't even touched on, there's such a massive and and amazing body of literature and research around um, the neuroscience associated with emotional intelligence. And to say it in short, um, we know that our frontal cortex um, is our CEO of our brain, but we experience life through our limbic system, the base of our brainstem. And so in short, that means that as much as we would love to make our decisions from our frontal lobe and our CEO of our brain, many times we are, you know, running on lack of sleep, or we are short-staffed this week, or it's fourth quarter, so we're in a sprint to the finish line in our strategic planning and budgeting cycles, or any other of the myriad factors that can influence whether or not I have whole attention um, and clarity to bring to what I'm doing today. So if I'm operating from a circumstance of stress or hurriedness or anything else, I can be reacting emotionally or irrationally when I really need to bring my best self forward. Or we all know that there are certain people or certain circumstances that push our buttons. So in this um, step, I encourage you to be more mindful of your emotions and your emotional reactions. Find ways to reflect. On, um, you know, what circumstances or what people or what types of environment push your buttons where you tend to react suboptimally? How can you assess that? How can you think about it? Seek the counsel of other people that can help you to build a game plan to make some behavioral change that will help you to avoid being reactive or responding suboptimally. Um, and then that third step is to really be the type of person that seeks feedback consistently, zestfully, voraciously, Um, it might not be good or fun to hear, but if you're the type of person that really is consistently seeking feedback on your strengths and your weaknesses, on your blind spots, on what biases might be in your way in a certain relationship or in a certain circumstance, seek that feedback from mentors, from trusted colleagues, from um, peers, or find an executive coach, find someone who can be that objective third party who can really help you to unlock um, and unstick yourself from things that tend to keep you stuck. Um, And I think that that's a very hard and intimidating thing for a lot of us to do. Once we've risen to any level of high performance in an individual contributor role, or once we're advancing in our leadership, it's, it's very hard to acknowledge that we might still have need or room to grow, but the higher that we rise, the more visibility others have to the 360-degree view of our personality, of our strengths, of our weaknesses, of our leadership style, and ignorance is not bliss when it comes to blind spots, and so it is increasingly important to put yourself under the counsel of or on the hot seat of hearing the hard truth about where we're strong and where we're weak so that we can grow.
0: Yeah, what if, our, what if our listeners here have achieved emotional intelligence or they're climbing that mountain and they get there in the future, but unfortunately uh, they deal with a boss who has a very low EQ or a patient who really pushes their buttons or someone mm-hmm. else they deal with in life what are some techniques they can employ to just achieve better results with them?
1: Yeah, man, those, those are the most frustrating, <laughs> but unfortunately, um, very common realities. Because in our world, again, we don't get to operate in a vacuum, and so we can't protect ourselves from having to interact with those you know, toxic bosses or those individuals who have incredibly low emotional intelligence and could not give a rip but yet you're in their orbit, and so they influence everything related to your emotional well-being and your, um, you know, your ability to perform in your job. And obviously some of us are in circumstances that you know, we maybe just need to remove ourselves from, but there are so many circumstances where we can't um, you know, make ourselves immune from or you know, avoid those, and so the best that we can do is be very well prepared to manage them when they do, and some of those things are getting good feedback, taking yourself out of the moment and preparing, giving yourself the very best opportunity to respond in the best way, and then getting through it and not letting yourself devolve into some of the um, suboptimal, irrational conversations that can occur, and really deciding what your objective is and hoping to stick to some type of a script or, or target outcome, because those are the very maddening uh, realities of human interactions, which is why we tend to just want to gravitate to default to pushing the black and white buttons, pushing the black and white buttons, focusing on, you know, the things that sadly are not realistic because we operate in in a real messy world of other humans and other perhaps objectives that can cloud and influence and get in the way of uh, what it is that we're needing in a particular moment. So being outcome oriented, being very reflective and mindful of how we can prepare ourselves to approach those conversations with the best intent and the best mindset, and then successfully navigating them or with every attempt and intent for them to be successful
0: you've used a interesting term a number of times uh being mindful or mindfulness and as as you and our listeners know uh, a medical practice can be very high pressure high octane there can be uh, emotions can run high as as things can escalate there and and having that mindful approach can be very helpful i know that uh i've i've done some research and and done some uh Practice myself of meditation, uh, breath control to just sort of slow things down. Um, as as we've all had those situations where things are escalated, and and you you uh, you know, there's that old saying, "Don't." fire off that email or that letter that's negative, you know, right away. Don't push the send button to uh, sleep on it overnight. And if you still feel the same way the next day, then then maybe it's okay to send it at that point. But what role then yeah. does uh, mindfulness play? Do you uh, advocate, um, you know, either meditating or some form of, of breathing to just slow things down, slow the slow the emotions down so you can sort of analyze the situation first before reacting?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say it's very, very individual, but I would say, yes, you're spot on, Daniel. that whatever it is that we choose to undertake, and a lot of people have a very you know, visceral reaction when they hear that word mindfulness, because it seems very woo-woo, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It seems very existential. But on the other hand, it is as simple as being very intentional, and getting good clarity on what you want and need. So for some people, it is a matter of just taking a moment or two to close your eyes and take a series of five to 10 deep breaths to just kind of calm the noise in our brain to focus on that next conversation or phone call that we need to make or email that we need to draft or before we walk into a room where a conversation will occur. For some of us, it can be finding a daily practice of wherever that space is that will give us some kind of clarity to calm the chaos and the noise there will never be an end of the demands for our attention but if we don't find ways to intentionally mindfully focus ourselves and draw boundaries and set priorities it's hard to do we have to very small behavioral shifts over time but when you look back at the last week on your calendar the last month these first three quarters of the year that are now in the books as we record today. How much time has been wasted? How much inefficiency and unproductivity is a consequence of our maybe not have been as focused or as as intentional with our priorities and our attention as we could have been? And what can we do to be a little bit better this week, this month, this quarter, next year than we have been in the past so that we can see that growth and that maturation in the way that we approach the work that we do. And, and at some point in time, we'll start to see ourselves come out of the chaos and the din to be able to get good traction and meaningful engagement in what we're doing. It will never be without challenge. But I think you know, those practices of mindfulness or those ways that we can in tune with our own individual self reset, recenter, tuck ourselves away to be able to get clarity on where we're at, what things we're struggling with, and where we're going in the future. Those are the habits and practices of emotionally intelligent leaders.
0: Final question. Do you have any specific examples of people or a medical practice you've seen thrive by implementing any of these steps for emotional intelligence that you've been talking about?
1: Yeah, I have I have an amazing colleague who uh, is a physician leader uh, in a larger regional health system, and uh, she was really feeling stuck. Um, she really felt like she was reporting to a very toxic boss, and she was. Uh, she was a part of an organization that was, was in a spin cycle, if you will that was quite negative, And she was bearing some collateral consequence of that. She was still in a part-time clinical role and she had a part-time administrative appointment within her organization. And it was really tough. She felt very discouraged. And I remember conversations over the last couple of years where she described um, feeling, you know, like she was approaching burnout, wondering if she should just go back to full-time clinical practice. Maybe she wasn't cut out for the C-suite and, um, Over time with, you know, consistently staying the course and assessing and getting clarity on what her values were, what her priorities were, what she very most wanted to be able to contribute and where she felt like she had strength to be able to uh, deliver outcomes to her organization and getting through with the help of some outside, you know, perspective, but then also just establishing some of these approaches to the way that she uh, came to difficult conversations and really leveled up in her own skill set, both technically, as she transitioned from clinical practice into this executive role, but then also just behaviorally, as she realized that to be a leader and to have organizational purview versus just you know direct patient accountability in her job, she really. Found the growth and some of the changes occurred organizationally that helped certain toxic people to leave. And in our most recent conversation, she described not only the individual growth and the maturity that she's experienced in feeling so much better equipped to be able to take on those messy, hairy challenges that are inter- interpersonal or human behavior oriented, but also now having found a role that is really fulfilling for her where she's got a lot of pride in the work that's being done by her team, in her organization. She's got a lot of amazing visibility and a ton of runway out in front of her to be able to invest the rest of her career um, in some very increasingly amazing executive roles. But it was kind of the patience and the willingness to do some of the hard and messy work of going internal um, and identifying and gaining clarity on what she most wanted and needed from her career, but then validating that against external perspective, and then just the patience and the tenacity to be able to sustain some of those hard realities of what was a less than ideal organizational circumstance, a political climate, if you will, at the time uh, within her organization, and then coming out on the other side, being able to see the forest for the trees, so to speak, when there were definitely days and weeks and months or stretches therein where she wasn't sure uh, that she was going to be able to make it. She kind of wanted to throw up, throw in the towel, you know, throw up the bat signal for help and, and, and give up. But it was, a, it was a process of organizational change that happened concurrently to her individual personal change.
0: Laurie Bedke, Director of Healthcare Leadership at Creighton University, thanks for being here today.
1: Oh my goodness, Daniel. It's my pleasure. This this time has flown. It's been so much fun and I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but I so appreciate the invitation to have this conversation. It's an important one.
0: Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Laurie Bedke. Also, don't forget to check out MGMA's book of the month, Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes. To purchase or preview the book, visit mgma.com slash navigating. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at mgma_daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.